Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho. Copyright 2019. If you would like to find out more about Canon Press materials and products, please call 1-800-488-2034. For a complete list of our products or to order online, please visit our website at canonpress.com. Enjoy the sermon. So all God's people said, Amen. Let us rise and worship the triune God. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who are in awe of him. He will hear their cry and save them. Amen. Isaiah 25.1 says, O Lord, thou art my God. I will exalt thee. I will praise thy name, for thou hast done wonderful things. Thy counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. So lift up your hearts. Let's pray. Father God. You have given us ears to hear the Spirit's invitation to come. We have gathered on this first day of the week, the day of new creation, the day on which by your power you raised our Lord and Savior Jesus from the dead. And we exult in the fact that we who were once dead in sin are made alive to righteousness. We who were once mute have now had our tongues loosed to sing the glories of our God and King and the triumphs of your grace. We who were once blind now behold the inexpressible glories of our God. We are gathered to sing your praise, hear your word, feast upon your body and blood, to worship you through Jesus Christ our Lord who lives and reigns with you, the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end, and amen. God is watching you. He sees everything you did this week. He saw every eye roll, every dirty joke you told, every hand which balled into a fist of unrighteous anger. He saw every website, movie, book, magazine, and TV show you consumed. He saw every act of rebellion to your parents, every unkind word, every cruel word of mocking, every bitter dispute. But he also saw your heart. He watched when you did something apparently kind, but with a conceited heart, and how you buttered up your parents by doing your chores so that you could manipulate them into permitting you to spend time with foolish friends. He watched how you finished the job, but by lazily cutting corners. He saw the good Christian smile plastered on your face, but he also saw the roiling envy and bitterness in your heart. The Lord saw not only what you did, but why you did it. This reality should be a profound guard against sin. Being mindful of the all-seeing eyes of the Lord should hasten our flight from sin. Sin entices us with the false notion that no one will notice or know. But the saint must remember that the Lord will notice and know. And then the saint should hightail it on out of there. For the sinner, this this news should, should drive you to seek mercy in God through the Lord Jesus. For the saint, this should be a comfort. Your father constantly watches over you so that you might grow up to be like Jesus. His convicting you of sin is proof that you are his child and his truth is going deeper and deeper into every corner of your life. Prophet Isaiah says, Who is among you that feareth the Lord, that obeyeth the voice of his servant, that walketh in darkness and hath no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and stay upon his God. Father God, we're continually tempted to become functional agnostics. Every time we give in to sin, it is as as if we are confessing by our actions that you don't exist. Our duplicity and hypocrisy is vile. We claim to be believers in the most high God and then turn around and act as if you don't see our sinful actions, thoughts, words, and deeds. But you dwell on high. 
Nothing escapes your notice, and your holiness demands that you judge every sin with the wrath of a thousand sons. Grant that we might be ever mindful that you see it all, and may this drive us to cherish your fatherly care over us. If we in the church regard sin in our own hearts or in our own lives, we know this prayer will be ineffectual, so we now confess our individual sins to you, and Selah. We do this in Jesus' mighty name, and amen. Let us rise for the assurance of pardon. Isaiah 1, 19 says, If ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. Though God sees everything you've done and why you did it, when we come by faith in Jesus to confess our sins, God looks at you and sees only Jesus, and he declares to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. The text this morning is Colossians chapter 2. These are the words of God. For I would have you know what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ." For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ." Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head, from which all the body, by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not? which are all to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom and will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. 
Our Father and God, we thank you for your word. I pray that your spirit would be present here this morning, and I pray that this word would be applied to our hearts by him in power and in efficacious might. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are continuing our way through the book of Colossians, and uh, Colossae, as you remember, is about 100 miles inland on, uh, in modern-day Turkey. Ephesus is on the western uh, coast of modern-day Turkey. Colossae is about 100 miles inland. Laodicea, which is mentioned in our passage here, is just about 10 miles from Colossae. Paul mentions that church in this passage, and a lost letter to the Laodiceans is referred to later in the book in Colossians 4.16. So we don't have that uh, letter. This church at Laodicea had fallen on hard times by the time the Lord Jesus addresses them directly in the book of Revelation. You remember there are, there are seven short letters to uh, seven churches at the beginning of the book of Revelation where the Lord Jesus is speaking uh, to these churches. And Laodicea, in, in that letter, the Lord Jesus has nothing good to say about them uh, as a church. As a collective body, that church had fallen on hard times. Nevertheless, there were some still, at that time, there were some still among the Laodiceans who were capable of hearing the uh, voice of the Lord. The very famous passage in Revelation 3, 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock, is from that passage. Uh, Jesus is incidentally not standing at the door of someone's heart. He is not knocking at the door of someone's heart. He is not asking to come in and uh, so that the person will allow him to convert that person. The door where Jesus is knocking is the door of a church, all right? And oftentimes the door of a church is a lot harder for Jesus to get through than the door of a heart. So the church, where, the, the church door where Jesus is famously knocking is not the door of the heart, but rather the door of the church. The people in the church who can hear it really should be the ones who answer the, who answer the door. And, and Jesus promises to commune with them. Well, that's all at Laodicea, and the Laodiceans are mentioned here. And at the end of the book, he, Paul asks for them to swap letters. He wants, uh, he wants the Colossian letter to be led to, read to the Laodiceans and vice versa. So let's uh, consider a summary of this second chapter. Paul had not mentioned, met these believers before, um, or the believers in Laodicea for that matter, and he wishes that they knew the conflicts that he had undergone on their behalf. He wanted them to know about how worked up he was on their behalf. He had not planted the church in Colossae. He had not planted uh, the church in Laodicea. Remember that Epaphras, who had been in Ephesus when Paul was teaching there for that three-year stretch, Epaphras was a minister who had planted the church. Now, these conflicts that Paul mentions that he went through were apparently instances of wrestling in prayer on their behalf. And he, because he goes right from, I wish you knew about the conflicts I've had for you, and he moves right into how he's expressed desire, certain things for them in, in prayer, where he expressed the desire that their hearts, for example, might be comforted, that they might be knit together in love and into a full assurance, verse 2. This is what he wants for them. He wants them to be knit together, and he wants them to grow up into a full assurance. As they were knit into this understanding of Christ, being knit together 
is not possible apart from the point of integration, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, in chapter 1, Christ is the arche. He is the point of integration. He is the, he is the one in whom everything comes together, including Christians. Christians come together only in and through Christ. So he wants this for them so that they would be immune to beguiling and enticing words. Verse 4. So God wants us to all come together in Christ. The devil doesn't want that. So the devil wants us to be paying attention to something other than Christ. If we're, if we're mindful of Christ, if we're worshiping God through Christ, if our mouths are full of Christ, we're going to be growing closer and closer together with those who are sharing that endeavor. If we take our eyes off Christ, something else is going to start to happen. So Paul was not there, he was not, but he was with them in spirit. So Paul's not with them physically, but he's with them in spirit, and he rejoices in the steadiness of their worship and faith. Verse 5, he says they needed to walk like Christians, and that means the 10,000th step should be just like the first one, taken in faith. Verse 6, if we begin by faith, we should finish the same way. If we begin by faith, we need to continue by faith. We need to conclude by faith. That's what we see in Romans 1, 16 and 17. Uh, uh, the just shall live by faith, and everything is by faith from first to last. We also have the same thing in Galatians, where he says to the Galatians in chapter 3, Are you so foolish? Having begun with the Spirit, are you now going to finish by by human effort, are you now going to finish in the flesh? No. You begin with the Spirit, you continue in the Spirit, you finish in the Spirit. You apprehend the riches of Christ by faith at the beginning, in the middle, and in the end. So the way you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. The way, how, do you, how do you be a Christian? You be a Christian, you are a Christian the same way you became a Christian. You became a Christian by the grace of God through faith. That's how you continue. How did you take the first step? That's how you take the 10th step. That's how you step out the last mile. So it's all Christ from first to last, and Christ is ours by faith. So they're to be rooted in Christ, built up in Christ, in just the way that they were taught. So they were taught this from the beginning, how a Christian lives his life as a Christian is something they should, have, should be taught from day one. From the first day, this is how you become a Christian now. This is how you stay a Christian. This is how you continue to be a Christian. Keep doing the same thing. So they are to be rooted in Christ just the way they were taught, and they should be overflowing with gratitude. Verse 7, the alternative to this kind of progress in sanctification is to be spoiled through philosophy and vain deceit and to be susceptible to the lies men tell, not according to Christ. Verse 8, if you take your eyes off Christ, you are setting yourself up as a mark for liars. You're setting yourself up as a target for liars. You look to Christ, and if you're not looking to Christ, you are, you, you've got a little red laser dot uh, from the devil's rifle, but, you know, bobbing around on your chest, and you don't want that. Remember that all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Christ, verse 9. So when you're looking to Christ, you're looking to everything God has. Everything God is, all of God is resident in Christ. It, Christ uh, has all the fullness of the Godhead dwelling in him. And so when you're looking to him, you're looking at every possible help, every possible 
salvation, every possible intervention, every possible deliverance is found there in Christ. Why? Because all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him. So look, at, look to him. This means that if we are in him, that is sufficient. Verse 10, in Christ we were all spiritually circumcised, verse 11, which corresponds to our baptism, verse 12. We used to be dead, but now we're alive, verse 13. The accusations of the law, which were against us, and so, uh, were, were against us, and so God removed all those accusations by nailing them to his cross. Verse 14. So when, you, when we confessed our sins this morning, and, there, and in the exhortation, you heard a bunch of bad deeds that, that we're all susceptible to and that we can be tempted to. You heard a bunch of bad things. What, and the law comes and accuses us of every one of those things. The law comes and tells us that, that you're, you don't measure up. You were bad here. You were bad there. You're worse over there. And you take all those accusations. And what does God do with those accusations? All of them true. All of these true accusations. What does God do with them? He gathers them all up and he nails them to his cross. He nails them to the cross, killing them. Those accusations are killed dead. Those, accus those true accusations are killed dead in the body of Christ on the cross. So when the terms of the law are raised, what happens to those things that are nailed to the cross in Christ? Well, they're raised from the dead. When the law is raised from the dead, no longer is the law a set of accusations. When the law is raised from the dead, the law is rather an expression of love. The, the, law, tells us the, the, the law tells the redeemed and forgiven believer what love looks like, not what condemnation looks like anymore. Before you're a Christian, all the law reminds you of is how you don't measure up. It's all condemnation. Once you are forgiven, it's all love. It's, this is what love looks like. You, and you are set free to pursue that. So this humiliated what Jesus did, what God did in Christ, uh, humiliated the principalities and powers, and this is how Christ triumphed over them, verse 15. And this is why and how we are liberated from the religiously fastidious and any regulations having to do with food or drink or calendar observance or new moons or Sabbaths. Verse 16, all of those things are just shadow play. All of them are just shadow play. Verse 17, don't let any man beguile you with this kind of stuff. Verse 18, and remember that a certain kind of fleshly mind is attracted to this kind of living. A, a certain kind of fleshly mind likes being scrupulous, likes having a uh, paint-by-numbers kit. Here's your Christian life. Here's the paint-by-numbers kit. Here are the colors. Just paint that color into that little circle, and then there, there you go. There's your Christian life. Well, not according, to, not, not according to Scripture. That's not what God wants from us. So a certain kind of scrupulous mind is attracted to this kind of thing, but Paul doesn't want us to be among them. Such a one does not hold onto the head, which is how the body is knit together. Verse 19. How, how can you be knit together with a fellow Christian, one who, say, gets on your nerves, a fellow Christian who is not easy to get along with? How, how, how can you close the distance between you and this other troublesome saint? Well, you do it by closing the distance between you and Christ. You, you do it by looking to Christ. Let Christ do the work. Let Christ do the closing. So, you, if you're 
If you're holding to the head, this is just going to be happening. If it's not happening, it's because you're not holding to the head. If you're dead in Christ, then why act as though you were alive to the world and to its fussiness? Verse 20. Listen to the worldlings. Listen to the worldlings go on. Don't, 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 don't. That's worldliness. Don't. Don't, ta- don't taste. Don't touch. Don't handle. Don't, 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 don't. That's not, super, that's not super Christianity. That's worldliness. Why do you listen to those things, Paul says? These things are transient and temporal, verse 20, 22. They have the look of wisdom, and they display well, but they don't do any good at all, verse 23, in checking fleshly indulgence. Strict rules for the flesh doesn't work. If you want to mortify lust, you're not going to do it with strict rules. If you want to mortify envy, you're not going to do it with rules. If you want to mortify covetousness, it's, rules aren't going to do it. The only thing that's, that can do this sort of thing is the work of the Spirit, and that is going to come about as we're clinging to the head. So, let's go back over this chapter, and, and I want to point to a few significant portions that are, um, I, think, a, I think, a big deal. The first is the emphasis of the chapter as a whole. Do not be beguiled. Do not be beguiled. Don't be taken in. Remember that when Eve was deceived by the serpent in the book of Genesis, her response was to say, the serpent beguiled me. The serpent beguiled me. Genesis 3, 13. And remember also that Paul was worried about something similar happening to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians eleven three, this is what he says, but I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve, through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Notice, the simplicity that's in Christ, the complications come from the serpent. Simplicity, just love Jesus, keep your eye on Jesus, pursue Jesus. That's pretty straightforward. That's pretty simple. The simplicity that is in Christ, and then the serpent comes and beguiles. The serpent comes and he complicates things. The serpent comes with a story and we are enticed. So Eve says, the serpent beguiled me. Paul keys off of that when he's concerned about the Corinthians. And he says, I don't want you to be taken in the way Eve was taken in. I don't want you to be beguiled. He has the same kind of concern here. Paul is concerned that the Colossians might be susceptible to a particular kind of worldly wisdom. He warns them against vain deceit and philosophy. Verse 8, vain deceit and philosophy. Take care. Watch out. Watch out. Watch out. He says that this kind of deception is deeply embedded in the way this world operates. The traditions of men and the rudiments of this world. Verse 8 and verse 20. Now, this is important. Traditions of men and the rudiments of this world. So, um, uh, David Wells, a theologian named David Wells, said that the essence of worldliness is to make sin seem normal and holiness seem outlandish. That's, that's what worldliness is. By peer pressure, by the drumbeat of the media, by entertainment, uh, you're the weird. If you want to stand upright, if you want to tell the truth, if you want to do the right thing, you are going to be made to feel like a weirdo. And if you are being enticed into some weird thing, you're going to be sucked down some wormhole or other with some weird, esoteric, complicating 
complicated philosophy, it's going to seem like the most normal thing in the world. Notice he says, the traditions of men and the rudiments of this world. It's not going to feel odd. If you start to veer off from Christ, if you take your eyes off Christ and you start to go get into this thing or that thing, you start to pursue, this, this is going to help you out, this is going to fix that, this is going to do the other thing, it's not going to feel odd. Why? Because it's the rudiments of this world. That, that's, that's why. It's the, this is the way the world is. So when people, when people veer off into vain nonsense, they are doing something that seems to fit somehow. Um, the devil could tell you something that's false, right? He could come to your door and tell you a flat-out falsehood that would be recognized by you as a flat-out falsehood. Here, wear this pink propeller hat, and, you know, and it all will go well. And you're going to say, that's stupid. That's a pink propeller hat. And you, know, and you just dismiss it because it's, it's, it doesn't, that kind of lie wouldn't fit with the rudiments of this world. It wouldn't fit with the traditions of men. But there are lies that, there are lies that are every bit as crazy as that, but they fit somehow. All right, how? How does this work? When someone veers off from Christ, they, they feel like they're finding themselves. They feel like they're getting down to the bones of the world. But they're actually drifting away from Jesus Christ. They're actually veering off away from Jesus Christ. Paul uses two different words that are rendered as beguiled by the KJV here. One is in verse 4, and the other is in verse 18. And the latter, the one in 18, has a sense of controlling or manipulating. So don't be beguiled. Keep it simple. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, crucified for our sins, buried, raised again from the dead, and he's at the right hand of God the Father now. Look to him and don't let someone say, yes, that and this other stuff. Yes, that and this other addition. No, no. A thousand no's. So this chapter, Colossians 2, is crammed with cautions. It's crammed with cautions. It's like this world is booby-trapped. This world is a minefield, and, and you're going to, it's a minefield, and you're, and why did you, it's a minefield. Why did you strap on those snowshoes and go running around in the minefield? Try to find the mines. No, this, the particular kinds of first century pitfalls are not with us today. The, the, the details of their cults and their religions and their false teachings, those details are not with us today. But the rudiments of the world most certainly are still with us. The world is still the same way. The traditions of men still operate the same way. Christians need to be constantly warned and cautioned. Christians need to be constantly warned, waved off of, Worldly currents, worldly wisdom, worldly ways of doing things. Wave, no, there's, 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 there's poison in it. It, it wouldn't be, if it, looked like it was a, if it looked like it was a poisoned meal that the devil was offering you, it wouldn't be shrewd, and the devil is shrewd. He offers things to you that look wise. He, offer things, he offers things to you that look like they have wisdom. But, they, but they're, he's got your death in mind. So, there are things that seem innocent enough, innocent enough, but you need to be, be very wary. Beware of the new age spirituality that is seeping into everything. 
New Age spirituality is now printed on the side of Kleenex boxes. All right, beware of the Kleenex box. The, the, well, you might say, that's, a, that's one legalistic church warning you about Kleenex. Well, no, there, we, we, um, we live in a time when advertisers, and the devil is behind many of these advertisers, want to get their branding onto absolutely everything. If there's a blank space, somebody wants to monetize it. If there's a blank space, someone wants to get some message. And since most American corporations have bought into all the woke business, have bought into all the woke business, you're going to find uh, you're going to find razor companies telling you to be good. <laughs> I don't want a razor company telling me to be good. I belong to a church. Uh, you know, I, I so uh, I'll, I was astonished the first time I was pumping gas in a, and a little commercial popped up on the gas pump, you know. Well, well a commercial, they're selling, me, they're selling me something. Well, not only is it's fine for them to try to sell you gas or bubble gum or, or Kleenex or that part, of, that's their job. But what they're also doing is they're selling you, many uh, corporations today are in effect selling you new age spirituality. They're telling you to believe in, uh, so most American corporations that get into this want to tell you to believe in fill in the blank. Believe in Jesus? No. Believe in yourself. You know your catechism. You've got to believe in yourself. Proverbs says the person who believes in himself is a fool. Well, that would seem to be not a meeting of the minds. <laughs> this is not exactly harmonizable. A man who trusts in his own heart is a fool. And a man who looks deep in his own heart and follows whatever he hauls up out of his own heart, that is what our generation calls wise. So beware of new age spirituality and, and all the uh, sanitized forms of it. Beware of crystals, beware of oils, beware of depth psychology, beware of feel-good affirmationism. You go, girl. The maxims of sports psychology, spelunking in the cavernous world of personality and identity, and the all-round oprification of America. Beware of the spiritual, not religious, goo that is encroaching us on every side. And it is goo thought. It is goo thought, and it's not Christ. It's not Christ. And it doesn't matter how good it sounds, and it doesn't matter if a Christian could come along and take those words and put a, a Christian construction on them. Right? So, beware. It, it, the, the world is no less hazardous today than it was in the first century. The rudiments of this world are no less an enemy of your soul than they were back then. The traditions of men are no less your adversary than they were then. And this chapter of Colossians tells you to watch your step. Watch your step, watch your step every minute. And if you've got your hands in your pocket saying, no, I'm good, I'm good, I'm a Christian, I'm fine, I'm a Christian. Yeah, you're a Christian, and that's who Paul's talking to. Paul's talking to Christians, and he's telling Christians not to be beguiled. He's telling Christians to beware of vain philosophy, vain deceit and philosophy. He's telling Christians to watch out for these things. When John, at the end of 1 John, says, little children, keep yourselves from idols, why does he have to tell Christians to keep themselves from idols? Because they might not, Right? That's why the warning, it, we don't have beware of the cliff signs in the middle of Kansas. There's no, there are no cliffs there. 
When the Bible tells Christians to beware of idols, when the Bible tells Christians to keep their eyes on Christ, when the Bible tells Christians not to be beguiled, and I'll say it again, don't be beguiled, and we keep going over it and over it and over it again, don't you say to Paul, well, I don't need that. You need it, I need it, everybody needs it. We are, the world wants to seep into everything. So don't be beguiled. Another great thing out of this chapter is Paul, even though Paul had not been there at Colossae, he rejoiced, he says, to see their order. That means he was obviously told about it. He was told about how they functioned. So we have to be, uh, we have to be careful just because the things, uh, just because the things just mentioned are dangerous because of our fallen tendency to want to have external levers that control our lives to be right in front of us. That's our tendency. We want to be in control. We want someone to say, here, this pill will fix it. Here, this, here, here are the levers. This, these levers are what you need to manipulate. And if you, need to, if you manipulate these in the right way, if you buy my book for $9.95, and I will tell you how to operate these levers, and these levers might be anything from um, uh, you know, how, to, how to build your own company, how, you know, how to make a million dollars in real estate in 10 minutes, buy my book, and then the first page is sell people your book. <laughs> that's, that's, how, that's how you make money. There's, somebody's running a scam all the time. If you, and the, the, the reason the scam works is that we want to feel like we're in control of our lives. We want to think that we can, we want someone to set up a panel in front of us with knobs on it that we can twiddle. And if we twiddle these knobs, and if, you, if this guy says, no, you've put the knobs in this configuration, things are going to go well for you. And someone else says, no, 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 you have to do it in this configuration or the other configuration. You, this is what you've got to do. When people do that, the, that gives the client, that gives the customer a feeling of control. But we're Christians. God is in control. We serve him. We're Christians. God is the only one who's sovereign. Now, here's the difficulty. When someone is running a scam on you and they give you these phony knobs to twiddle, the problem is that we, are, we have bodies, we live in this world, and God gives us some real knobs to twiddle. He, he gives us things to do. He tells us, God tells us to do certain things, and it's possible for us to turn things that God gave us to do into an idol in just the same way. We think that we think that we ha were in control just because we're doing something God told us to do. Now, there are pagan levers just mentioned, the pagan levers just mentioned that veer off from Christ, but we can do the same thing. We can make the same mistake with biblical levers, with biblical knobs. God required sacrifice and burnt offering. So why does the psalmist say sacrifices and burnt offerings you did not require? But a humble and a contrite heart. Why does God say I didn't want sacrifices and burnt offerings? When someone disposed to argue, you could say, you did too want sacrifices and burnt offerings. Here's the verse right here. And this relates to the next issue that this passage raises. So why do we worship the way we do? Why do we worship the way we do? We have a structured worship service. We have uh, a printed bulletin beforehand, which means that on Thursday, we have some good idea of how we think it's going to go, right? Uh, but by Thursday... And, and there is a deep strain in American Christianity that thinks that this is quenching the spirit, having a set form of worship, having, knowing on Thursday what, you're going, what song you're going to sing and at what time is quenching the spirit. And it seems way too regimented. It seems way too orderly. Oh, look, 
the Van Trapp children are going to worship. You know, blow the whistle, you march, you do this and do that and process, and, and the men come down and see. It seems uh, seem so scripted. It seems so scripted. It seems so phony because it's, because it's scripted. Well, Paul, in verse 5, Paul refers to the blessing of how orderly the church at Colossa was in its worship. He says it's a, it's a blessing to, to him how orderly the church at Colossa was in its worship. The word there is for order is toxis, and originally it was a military term, much like how we would use the term, the word regimentation. So toxis is a military, uh, military term, and we would have, uh, our, our word regimentation is obviously originally a military term. If you, if you go to see a precision drill team, or you look up a precision drill team on the internet and you see men marching back and forth, spinning their rifles in sync, and it's just it's one of the most amazing things you can see. Almost never will you hear someone standing there in the crowd saying, what a bunch of legalists. <laughs> I don't think he means it. <laughs> How could he mean it? He did it at the same time everybody else did. No, he, mean, he means it so much that he gave himself hours and hours and hours to devote himself to learning how to do it the same way the other guys were doing. What, what does uh, planning beforehand have to do with insincerity? Right? The fact that you thought it through beforehand does not make it insincere, and the fact that you just spontaneously erupted with it does not make it sincere. It can be phony on the spot, and it can be devout and pious thought out beforehand. So... Paul is pleased about two things at Colossa that he'd heard about. One was their steadfastness in Christ, and the other was the disciplined order of their worship services. For many reasons, most of them going back to the vaunted spontaneity of a philosopher named Rousseau, we moderns tend to think that structured worship is, is somehow necessarily insincere. We tend to think that a prayer that you actually thought through and prayed over, over as you wrote it, let's say you were asked to pray and you wrote your prayer out and you thought about your prayer, you composed it, you spent two days composing your prayer, you prayed over the prayer, and then you came up and read it. Somebody visiting could say, he just read his prayer. He didn't mean, he didn't mean that. He didn't mean that. One of the things that many years ago, this is something just a little autobiographical note. I grew up in Christian circles. I, I knew how to go to a Bible study, and I knew how to freak out, how to not freak out if I was asked to pray, right? Because if you've been a Christian, you've been around, you know how to pray. You, you, dear Lord, we thank you for being here with us this evening, and we just, Lord, we just want to uh, just thank you for being just, Lord, just, just. You're just. <laughs> now, one of the things I noticed when I, a number of years ago when I began composing a number of the prayers that I offer, one of the most striking things about it is I noticed that I stopped repeating myself. I stopped repeating myself. If you just go, if you just go on cruise control, it's very, very easy to just go through the same uh, things that you memorize that you learn how to do. So it's not saying that spontaneous extemporaneous prayers are insincere. Uh, sincerity and insincerity has nothing to do with that. It has, has to do with the state of your heart. So why do we worship the way we do? We believe that this kind of discipline and order, toxis, is pleasing to God, provided we remain steadfast in our faith in Christ. 
We believe that disciplined order is pleasing to God, provided we mean it from the heart. If we mean it from the heart, if we're doing what we're doing, because we believe this is what the Bible says to do, and this is our best way of approximating that, we don't judge someone else for what they're doing. We simply want to do what we think the Bible is saying. Paul rejoiced when he heard how orderly the worship at Colossae was. Something else that's striking about this passage, and that's in verses 10 and 11. It says, for ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And then going over into verse 12 uh, in apposition, buried with him in baptism. All right, so what is that? The Bible teaches us that physical circumcision, physical circumcision is a representation of spiritual circumcision. I want you to imagine I've got a, a black a whiteboard or something here and I'm drawing a square. So here you've got physical circumcision at this corner. At this corner you've got spiritual circumcision. And draw an arrow from physical circumcision to spiritual circumcision. Physical circumcision means spiritual circumcision. In Deuteronomy 10, circumcise your hearts, right? God says, circumcise your hearts. That's what I'm after. And then in Romans 2, Paul says, a true Jew is one who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart by the Spirit. So spiritual circumcision of the heart is the real deal, and then physical circumcision is intended to portray that. Physical circumcision points to spiritual circumcision. That's one side of the square. The next side of the square, you can see that physical baptism and spiritual baptism have the same kind of relationship. Physical baptism points to spiritual baptism. Scriptures teach that also. Physical baptism is a representation of spiritual baptism. In Acts 10, 47, what does Peter say when he goes to uh, and presents the gospel to Cornelius? He says, Why, who, who would forbid water seeing that they've been baptized in the Spirit? He's saying, why would we forbid water when they already have the Spirit? They've been baptized in the Spirit, so we need to baptize them in water. So physical water, water baptism, points to spirit baptism. That's the second side of this square. uh, Physical circumcision points to spiritual circumcision. Physical baptism points to spiritual baptism. This passage connects the two at the bottom. This passage connects the two at the bottom. It says, you've been circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. That's the spiritual circumcision made without hands in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ buried with him in baptism. how, How was it that you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands? You were buried with him in baptism. So that closes off the square at the bottom. Spiritual circumcision corresponds to spiritual baptism. Spiritual circumcision corresponds to spiritual baptism. And that's why, if you, want, if you want to close off the square, that's why we feel comfortable baptizing infants. In the Old Testament, infants were circumcised. Their, the meaning of circumcision was not altered by the fact of their infancy. And since baptism corresponds at least to this extent, baptism corresponds to circumcision, we feel comfortable drawing, uh, closing off the uh, square at the top and not just the bottom. So, why doesn't physical circumcision correspond to physical baptism? And if that is the case, then how or why would infants be, inclu- uh, be uh, excluded? We don't want to exclude them. Um, 
particularly if we think that this is a biblical thing to do. That's what, now, I, I do also want to say that, uh, that there are, the, the kingdom of God has contained many honorable, conscientious, and devout believers who wouldn't agree with a word I just said. Would, wouldn't agree with anything that I said there. And we have a baptism cooperation. In our church, we have a baptism cooperation agreement. The, uh, the, all the paedo-baptists in our midst say amen to the covenantal realities represented uh, when we baptize an infant, and all our Baptist brethren just think it's cute. <laughs> and, and why can we get along this way? How is it possible to get along this way? Well, because we're being spiritually knit together, because we're clinging to the head. And that leads to the, the last point to make here. We saw earlier how God wants us to be knit together in love. He wants us to be knit together in love. This happens when we hold fast to the head, that is Christ. Christ is the one in whom all the fullness of the Godhead dwells. And if we're holding fast to Christ, we're holding fast to that. We're holding fast to absolutely everything. You, holding on to Christ, outnumber absolutely everything and everyone else. You holding fast to Christ cannot be undone by anything. Our growth in the faith is Christocentric. And our love for one another, in order to be fervent, must also be, must also be Christocentric. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, as it says in 1 John 1, 7. Think of Christ here. If Christ is here, and you're here, and your brother's here, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, the closer you get to Christ, what's happening to your closeness to your brother? All right, if Christ is the, is the top of the triangle, as you're getting closer to Christ and your brother's getting closer to Christ, you're, you're beholding automatically, of necessity, you're getting closer to your brother. You're getting closer to your sister. And uh, the, basically closing on Christ, closing with Christ, coming to Christ, pursuing Christ is the way to pursue unity with other believers. So love God. Love God and love your brother, and this is so important, in that order. Love Christ and love your brother in that order. A lover of Christ is a lover of Christians. A lover of Christ is a lover of Christians. But if any finite being assumes the place of God in your life, any finite being or any finite thing assumes the place of God in your life and you love them more than anything else, it will not be long before you run out of gas. You'll just totally run out of gas and they will receive less love than they would have if you'd kept them at number two. If you make any other person your idol, if you make any other person your idol, what you are doing is preparing to shortchange that person. If you cling to Christ, then you will be knit to one another. We see this in verse 2 and in verse 19. Whoever loves father or mother or wife or husband or any other relative more than Christ cannot be Christ's disciple. That is true, Luke 14, 26. Jesus says, um, whoever does not hate his father and mother in Luke, and in Matthew he says, whoever does not love me more than father or mother, indicating that it works out, this, this, he means by hate, um, um, loving Christ so much that it seems like hate in comparison. That's what he's saying there. So whoever loves father or mother or wife or husband or any other relative more than Christ cannot be Christ's disciple. Luke 14, 26. 
But I want you to get, I, I really want you to get this. It is also true that whoever loves father or mother or wife or husband or any other relative more than Christ cannot really love father or mother or wife or husband or any other relative. Unless Christ is first, you are ripping your loved ones off. Unless Christ is first, you are ripping your loved ones off. If your family is the most important thing to you, then you're ripping your family off. If your wife is the most important thing to you, you're ripping your wife off. If your husband is the most important thing to you, you are ripping your husband off. You're ripping your children off. You're ripping your grandchildren off because you need to be, the appliance needs to be plugged into the wall, right? You can't say, I want to refrigerate these goods more effectively and have it closer to the counter so I can move the fridge, unplug it, and move it over there for the convenience sake. Everything in it's going to get warm and rot. Right? The, every, we, we need to be plugged in to the source of all love. And if we're not plugged into the source of all love, we can't love anybody. We, can't, we don't work. We don't love others. So if you unplug yourself from your communion with God, which is what you do when Christ is not number one, when Christ is not number one, you're unplugged, and you're unplugging from Christ, and then you're... So I'm... I'm, I'm uh, just temporary, I've got to give myself to my family. Just temporary, I've got to work on my marriage. Just temporary, I've got to deal with my coworkers or whatever it is. As soon as you're unplugged, all the things you're going to do to your family, coworkers, friends, people up and down the street is going to be pitiful and lame. You can't, you can't function in this world unless Christ is number one. You can't do right by anybody else unless Christ is number one. So Christ is the one principle of unity in all of this. And he is the principle of all unity. He is the arche in whom everything holds together. He is the one in whom the fullness of God abides. He is the only reason the knitting together works. He is the only reason this knitting together can function at all. We worship an infinite Christ, not an infinite series of little complicated lowercase Christs. Uh, we you know, we're religious people. We know that we've got plaques and bumper stickers and religious books around the house. And so nobody wants to say, I'm going to function like an atheist. We're, we're going to do what we do in the name of Jesus. But it's the name of Jesus, and we need to be doing it in the name of Jesus, in the power of Jesus, in the strength of Jesus, because we really are sold out. We love him. We love him, period. We love him, period, end. We love him, full stop. And when we love him full stop, do you think he cares about whether we love our neighbor? The two great commandments are love God, love your neighbor. And they come in that order. Love God, love your neighbor. And if you love God rightly, he will ensure that you love your neighbor. He will give you the grace for your neighbor. He will give you the grace for your family. He will give you the grace for your marriage. He will do this, but he's got to be number one. He, you've got to be a sold-out Christian and you, and you have to drop everything. You have to let go of all your idols, let go of all, your, all the beguiling things that you picked up on. You've got to just drop it. And when you drop it all, when you lay it all down and you say, God, and, I, and my hands are all gunked up from the things I was carrying around, would you please clean these too? And he says, yes. And you come to him, he knits you together. And when God knits a body of believers together, there is nothing on this world that can tear them apart. Nothing can come against us if we are knit together that way. If he does the knitting, nothing can drive us apart. If we are doing the knitting, pretty much anything 
can drive us apart. If we're just a social group that meets on Sundays, pretty much anything can do it. But if we are clinging fast to the head and not being beguiled by the lies of the devil and the lies of the world, then whatever is happening is going to be, of necessity, supernatural. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for how you knit us together in love. We thank you for our community of believers here. I pray that if, I, I pray that if Paul were uh, here, he would rejoice to hear of our order and our steadfastness in the worship of your son. I pray, Father, that whatever he was talking about with regard to the Colossians would be something that we understand, come to understand, and cling to. Amen. You may be seated. Repentance is a two-part act of faith. First, it turns from sin, and second, it pursues after God. First, it mortifies. Second, it vivifies. First, it sees how vile, wicked, and deadly sin is. Second, it flees to God to enjoy the light of his glory. First, it reviles the sin. Second, it hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Repentance is incomplete if it only sees sin as bad, turns from it, and sits there. Many times we want to turn our back to sin, but not budge an inch away from it. After all, sin gives the best back rubs. But true evangelical repentance, after seeing how bad sin is, turns away from it in godly fear and seeks after God. It turns from vice to seek after virtue. Halfway repentance sees the table, the, the table of sin it's spread with moldy jams, rotten roasts, bread made from sawdust, with maggots and cockroaches crawling over all of it. Halfway, repentance will turn away from this putrid feast, but it sticks around for the company. Full repentance is revolted by sin's feast, turns away from it, and runs full tilt to this table. You must not only feel bad for your sin, you must savor Christ. You must not only flee from the death which your sin deserves, but you must cling to the life which is found in Jesus. You must forsake your sin and feed your faith upon the Lamb of God. Have you despised your sin? Have you grieved over how it offends the holy God? Well and good, but repentance must not stop there. True repentance will always make its way to this meal, to the body and blood of our Lord Jesus. So come in faith and welcome to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you have opened our eyes to the exceeding wickedness of sin and you command us to repent of it all, turn from our sin, and come to you. So we come with grateful hearts to eat this meal that you've prepared for us. We give thanks that this meal reminds us not only that you have forgiven us, but also you pour out upon us a roaring cataract of life, the life of our Lord Jesus. And it's in his name that we give thanks. And amen. Now the charge is this. Think back to that one of those first verses in the chapter this morning where Paul says that in Christ are hid all the treasures, all the riches of wisdom and knowledge. So don't be tempted to run to the, the flea market of worldly ideas and worldly philosophies, the flea market of worldviews to go rummaging in their treasure chests, their coffers of worldly philosophies, either ancient or modern. And don't go there. If you go there, you probably won't, don't expect to find very much uh, wisdom. You may find a penny or two, uh, but I guarantee you they're borrowed coins and they actually belong to Jesus. And so the surest way of being beguiled by worldly philosophy is to take your eyes off of Jesus. In him are all the treasures, all the riches of wisdom and knowledge. Now hear the benediction of the Lord. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself 
and of God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Amen.